chapter 5, part 1. I just want to let you guys know before I get into this that it's a beautiful spring day here in March, late March of 2023, and there's all kinds of wildlife around me. Specifically, there's a bunch of bumblebees right outside my little pond house here that are buzzing like crazy, hitting all the flowers, um, and there's also tons and tons of birds that are chirping and going nuts. So the birds and the bees are here with me. I'm not sure if we'll be able to edit it out, but if you hear some buzzing or some birds, they're all around me. It's nice. I enjoy it out here. Okay, so we're going to go into this this part of the book, and I went into the history of treatment programs. Again, from my perspective, and I'm going to say that because I'll go into the 28-day, the reason for 28-day programs, which if you read in the book, was what insurance companies would provide. They would provide 28 days of coverage. That's what they would pay for. So the 28-day program was born. And a couple of people have told me that's maybe an old wives' tale or something like that, but you know, there's not really a validity to that specifically. But I've been hearing that ever since I got into the industry, so I'm inclined to believe it. Um, I don't have any proof of it, so take that for what it is. But you know, I go into the book and I say, well, I would do the same thing if insurance companies said you have 28 days of coverage, create a 28 day program. I mean, why not? More time is better. It's going to give a person a better chance to succeed. And so why, why not do that? I get it. Uh, I just want everyone to know when I wrote that part, that that magical 28 day number was not based on science. It was not based on, well, there was all these different studies and all these different methods. And they tried people in all these different ways, some three months, some six months, some 28 days, some 10 days, some whatever. And after all that science, they determined that the 28 days was the ideal point of time for treatment. That did not happen. The number was was created from something like that. Uh, how much it would be, how much would be paid for, and that's how it went. So I just wanted people to understand that. I want to talk a little bit about how the rehab industry used to be, quote unquote, back in the day, which to me is you know the 90s. Um, many people remember before then, but that's when I got into the industry. And back in the day like that, it, it was like the Wild West. And what I mean by that is nobody really cared about addicts, helping addicts, helping people that are that were hooked on drugs or alcohol. It, it was it was still stigmatized, not not as much as maybe, you know, in previous decades, but still there was this shame related to addiction and it wasn't really talked about that much yet that people go through these struggles and things like that. It's, it was still kind of quiet. And when you worked at a rehab, whether it was a nonprofit or a for-profit, it kind of felt like you were working at, oh, I don't know, like a volunteer group or a church or something where there's, it's not really like a business. It's more like just taking care of people. That was sort of the vibe. That was the culture uh, compared to where it is now, which is definitely business. Uh, I, I would say that now these days, the stigma is much, much, much better. It's dropped. People are much more forgiving of people who have been through addiction issues. They, they realize how prevalent it is in society and that it's common for people to go down that road and, and struggle. And I think, I think there have been some good 
uh, people advocating for help. I, specifically, who came to mind was the actor Robert Downey Jr., you know, Iron Man. He went into his story about how he was a young Hollywood superstar and, you know, went down that path of drugs, which is hardly shocking to anybody who understands what Hollywood is like. Uh, but he, he was real about his story. He got arrested and, and that he, he was vulnerable about his issues and that, uh, he's gone through that. And I think because of that, people are, people are more inclined to like him because he's, he's truthful about it. He doesn't hide it. You know, he was ashamed of it. He, he, he went through his struggles, but he overcame it. And at some point, what can you do, right? You, you, the past is the past. You do your best to make up for it and you move forward. And I'm really happy with the success that he's had since then. It, it, it gives inspiration to people who have been addicted. So when, when the healthcare bill was passed in 2010, uh, the, the affordable healthcare bill, the Obamacare bill, um, things changed. And things changed because, because mental health treatment was mandated to be covered by insurance companies as well as, which included addiction treatment. So now all of a sudden, these businessmen, for lack of a better word, decided, oh, wow, uh, you have to, insurance companies have to pay for treatment. Well, let's just open up rehabs because, you know, it's a big money play. And, you know, they were right in the sense that there was money there available. Unfortunately, for somebody who was already in the industry, was helping people without the thought of really making money, uh, seeing this happen was really kind of, um, I don't know, it turned my stomach a little bit. These business people came in, they started slapping up rehabs everywhere, you know, buy, buying old hotels or resorts or whatever, converting them and, um, and pushing it out where I had, Hey, we're the best program out there. Come out here and, and get help with us. And they were doing insane budgets in marketing and, and doing everything they could to bring people into the program. And then the practice known as body brokering became very popular. And I go into that a little bit in the book. Well, I go into a lot in the book actually, but essentially body brokering is buying people, right? You buy a person, a person needs treatment. You find a person who's addicted and needs rehab and you send them to a rehab. Uh, if they don't have insurance, you buy insurance for them because if you buy a policy for somebody, this is all illegal by the way, now at this point, but if you, the, the thought was you find a homeless person or somebody who cannot afford treatment or insurance, you buy them a policy. Let's say it costs uh, premiums of $300 a month or something like that, $3,000 a year or something like that to buy the policy. Well, the rehab is going to pay you five, eight, $10,000 for that person. They're literally going to pay you for that person. So they would buy policies for people and then they would go into treatment. And these rehabs would have these elaborate schemes going where maybe, maybe one company owns multiple rehabs and they will, they will have a person come into their program by one of their independent agents who bring them in, body broker them in. They'll deliver the treatment to that person. And let's say the guy isn't really motivated to do treatment. He was just homeless and happy to have a bed and a shower and all these kinds of things. And I'm not knocking homeless people. I'm just using this as an example, by the way. And then let's say the guy gets out of the program and then immediately goes out and gets drunk, needs help again, right? Then you get, they say, oh, well, great. Well, we're going to send you to another program. It just happens to be owned by the same company. You see, so they're just bouncing the person from place to place, 
and billing all over the place. And they actually got very fraudulent when it came to billing for urine screening, um, which is was also made illegal. And the, the insurance companies essentially said, you, you can't do that anymore. But they were they were having people pee into a cup and send it to a lab to screen it to see if it was dirty for drugs or not. And the amount of money that they were billing the insurance companies for those particular labs was more than what they were getting paid for rehab, if you can believe that. So that all got shut down pretty quickly. And, um, you know, but it, it was crazy to see this. It, it, it was it was wild to watch the industry go through this. I, there's a movie apparently called Body Brokers that goes into this. And um, I've been meaning to watch it. I don't watch much TV or movies, but one of my friends said, oh man, I saw this movie. It was good. Is that really how it was? And I don't know because I haven't watched it, but I, I should watch it to see how accurate it is. But a couple other real quick stories that I do remember. Now I don't have proof of this, but I had a person tell me that this they were in that was in my program that said I was in another program and it was like this. And I heard a story of a guy in LA, this big, big dude, big buff, like like strong guy, intimidating guy, who owned this this big home, like a mansion, and it was running a rehab out of it. And the entire rehab was essentially vocational training based. That, that was the sort of thing they would do. They would get up in the morning, they would eat breakfast, they would do a meeting of some kind, like a, I don't know if it was a 12-step meeting or some kind of a group meeting, and then they would get to work. And the whole idea was to sort of work your way, produce, right, uh, to sobriety which in effect is not really that bad of an idea if you think about it because I go into people need to feel valuable, they need to feel like they have a skill, all these kinds of things. However, this definitely seems like it goes into the forced labor category. So this guy would walk around and he had a big stick that was like a bat, basically, like a baseball bat. And he would walk from room to room and basically not not do anything with the bat other than just be intimidating with it, right? Just kind of look over people's shoulders while they're working, while they're installing countertops into his bathroom or, you know, pulling up the hardwood floor or wh whatever was going on. Basically, this guy was using the people in his quote-unquote program to renovate his mansion, and then, which he would probably then sell or keep or whatever or go get another one and keep doing it. So... Back in back in the day, that that was happening, and and apparently, regulatory agencies were not stopping it. So when when I had a person tell me that story, I was I was shocked. Uh, but there was things were happening. There was another also a, a, a guy who worked for me, so I really believe him. He went into a wilderness program in I believe Utah, and he was uh, an adolescent, so I think he was sixteen or seventeen years old. His mom had enough, you know, sent him away to a program and he lived out on a ranch. And if you think about this too, the sort of ranch life, well, you know, get up, get up in the morning, do some work, you know, learn how to live off the land, whatever, you know, that, that sort of style of therapy, I think there's probably a lot of merit to that. However, he had a similar story where he said, oh yeah, we just built cabins all day. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, yeah, well, we do a little meeting or something, and then we'd go and work on cabins. And we built, he said, when I was in that program, it was something like nine months, 
he said something like 12 or 15 cabins had been built on this guy's property who owned this, this ranch. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, you gotta, you gotta imagine there's a conflict of interest here, right? It does not, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to, to realize that, okay, you, this guy's owning this program and he's having people build things that will add value to his real estate empire. That That's really shady. That's, I'm sure must be illegal, of course. I mean, but I, this, this is what was happening back then. I really don't know what's happening these days because I'm not in these other programs, but I would imagine that maybe in some county somewhere where, you know, in a, in a, in a I don't know if it's a poorer state or something like that, where there's not a whole lot of regulations, these things could still be happening. I really don't know. I would imagine in California where uh, my program is, there, there's not anything like that happening anymore because it would be too easy to report it and uh, and for people to discover what's going on. So if you can imagine, that's sort of the kinds of things that were going on not that long ago when you think about the addiction treatment industry. In the next part, I'll go into how that was sort of, how the insurance companies and, and the law and Congress responded to this.